You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading today will be taken from Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 42. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who cannot destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the, to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Thanks Thanks be to God. Thanks, Robin. Let's pray, and then we'll reflect on this passage. Would Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we give you great thanks that you've not left us to aimlessly search out what it means to know you and to be your people, but you revealed to us uh, who you are and your great love for us in your word. We pray now, Father, that you would open our eyes and the eyes of our inmost beings to see clearly your son, Jesus Christ, and that you would melt away all distractions. And in seeing Christ, we would know the great love that you have for us through him, And we would understand more of what you've called us to be as your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, 162 to 82. 162 to 82. I wonder if it surprised you. And I wonder if you have any idea what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about the box office numbers for this big Hollywood, I guess it was last weekend, of Barbenheimer as it's been called, uh, 162 million to 82 million. Barbie versus uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer film. And I wonder if I were to ask you, those of you who have not read and know the answer, which film do you think took in more money, Barbie or Oppenheimer? I wonder how you would respond. Now, I kind of had a hunch that Barbie might take in more, though I wasn't that interested in watching it, but I was almost, I was like shocked to find out that Barbie was you know, basically took in twice as many dollars uh, as a film. Uh, I was very interested in this Christopher Nolan film, Oppenheimer, uh, in part because, you know, we live in a world where a, a dictator who has nuclear powers is currently being humiliated in a war that, best case scenario, is going to end in a stalemate. And there's a very real chance nuclear bomb, a nuclear bomb could be used at any time. I thought the story of Oppenheimer sort of rang true with our moment. I thought people would want to go see Oppenheimer. But it seems as though a story of a doll with unrealistic proportions battling social pressures and dealing with the arch enemy of cellulite and the patriarchy and the kingdom and Kennergy was a story that people were much, much more interested in. And I don't want to overanalyze it. I realize part of why people go to see movies is not to get into existential crisis about nuclear war, but to kind of recreate. And so that might be why Barbie was what did better. But I wonder if it doesn't tell us a little bit about our times. The Oppenheimer film, the Christopher Nolan film, is telling a story about the creation of a nuclear bomb, and it's focusing on one scientist, but we all know the story is about something much bigger. It's about sort of the, the, the life of this particular scientist, but we all know the real story is we now live in a world where there are nuclear weapons. And the Barbie story seems to be a story that we're very attracted to as a society. A quest to kind of figure out who we truly are and how to be true to ourselves and true to our self-expression. Maybe one way I could say it is this. The Oppenheimer film seems to be a story which main plot is about nuclear weapons in our world which could bring about great death and destruction. And And it focuses in on one subplot of that big story on one particular scientist. But the Barbie film isn't really about some major plot. Barbie's life is the major plot. And her struggle is to fit all these other subplots into her experience of finding self-fulfillment and self-identity. Maybe this intro isn't isn't working. I don't know, some of you are staring at me blankly. 
I hear some of you stayed up quite late. Um, but why do I share this? You know, we've come to this passage this morning, and it seems to me that Jesus is giving us something much more like Oppenheimer. He's telling us something uh, that, that our lives are going to be subplots of a greater story, and something much less like Barbie, about how do we find self-fulfillment and be our truest expression of ourselves. It seems to me what Jesus is giving to us is a story that, if I'm honest, not just our city doesn't want to hear, but I also don't really want to hear. I mean, last week, what did we look at? If you weren't here, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, and he equips them with, with incredible powers, unbelievable powers. They're able to heal the sick, even raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons, and announce the arrival of God's kingdom. And in many ways, this sounds exciting. Who wouldn't want to be part of this, this group? Who wouldn't want to uh, see their, their, their future sort of expand with these particular powers? And then now, almost just as quickly as Jesus gives these incredible powers to these men, he now says, hey, by the way, persecution's coming. You want to know what it's going to feel like to be sent out? You're going to be like a sheep. You're going to be like a sheep wandering around in wolf-infested land. What is Jesus doing? What I think Jesus is doing, and the way I want to maybe challenge you to think about it, is I think he is trying to get all of us to understand that his good news, the announcement of his kingdom, that who he is, that this must be the main plot in your life, that, that he did not come to introduce some sort of subplot to make you your best version of yourself or to give you some experience of self-fulfillment where you can be true to your deepest, inmost being. He's not come to enhance your story, but he's come to invite you in to participate in his story. Does that make some sense? This is what I think is going on in this passage. And I think deep down we all know our life is just too temporary. It's too ephemeral. We know there must be something bigger going on that we participate in. We must be a piece of a puzzle of something beautiful being created. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, something deep inside of us also wants everyone else in our life to sort of be subplots and everything else in our life to be subplots in this grand narrative about our life. Maybe I'll say it this way, and I'm going to say this phrase over and over, and hopefully everyone walks out of here remembering it. But I think what Jesus is saying in this passage, and what we can take away from the, this passage is this, is, is that if Jesus is anything, he has to be everything, or he has to be worse than nothing. But one thing he just cannot be, he just can't be just something. He, he can't just be something. He's going to polarize when he walks in the room. And I think that that's what's going on in this passage. Jesus is saying, do what you want with me, but I can't be something, just something in your life, something that adorns your life. I either have to be everything or I have to be worse than nothing. But I, but I cannot be just something. And we're going to see this in two ways. Jesus is going to show that he can't be something because he's going to show there's an unbelievable amount of persecution that's going to come to his people. And he's going to call for a persistent loyalty. He's going to demand a persistent loyalty. And, and by these two things, we're going to know that Jesus just can't be something. He can't just be an accessory to your life. He can't just be, a, his, his gospel can't just be some message that will enhance your life. If Jesus is anything, he's either, he's either everything or he's worth than nothing. But he can't be just something. How can we know if Jesus is just something in our world. Well, we know he can't be just something because he's promising this incredible persecution. Look at this verse. I realize it's long, but let your eyes fall down on the bulletin. Jesus is saying that those who are his followers will be delivered to courts and flogged for his name's sake. 
His people will be persecuted because they're tied up with him, verse 17 and 18. Even family members will deliver one another over to death, verse 21. We see this again in verse 34 and 39. Family members will see each other as enemies. Jesus says you'll be hated, hated by all, in verse 22, for my name's sake. Verse 24 and 25, he says, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a servant above the master. If they maligned the, the teacher, so also you followers of him should expect some measure of mistreatment as well. And he ends the verse so clearly in verse 40 through 42, saying, He will be so intricately tied to his people, and that they will experience a very real uh, persecution. And, and, and yet, at the same time, those who receive his people, in a mysterious way, receive him. Now, I'm sure there's a measure of persecution that Barbie experiences as she faces the kendom and the kenergy that exists in our world, you know. But this persecution Jesus is saying that we should expect is unbelievable, flogged, hated by all, family turning in family member to die. Where? Ours is an incredibly polarized world. I don't think I need to make this case to you. The New York Times recently ran a piece that said one in five family relationships have been severely damaged by politics, okay? And not long after this, the uh, University of Saskatchewan has this Canadian hub for applied social research. They claim that 40% of Canadians have reduced contact with a friend or family member because of political views. Ours is an incredibly polarized time. Things are, things are edgy, you know, when, when politics come up around the table. And yet Jesus is saying that, that edginess, that distance, he's saying that is nothing compared to what people will experience when they make the decision to follow after me, when they join in the greater story that I am pushing forward. He's saying not just that family won't want to talk to each other, but family will actively call the police department so that someone else can be arrested and thrown into jail. I mean, this is unbelievable. This, this, deep, this deep tie of a, a mother calling the authorities on our daughter because of Jesus. This is the kind of polarization that he's talking about. He's saying that there is unbelievable persecution that will come. And you know why it is? Because Jesus can't just be something. He's either everything or he's worse than nothing. But he can't just be something. He can't just be ignored or he can't just be coddled. He will polarize everything he comes encountered with. It shouldn't surprise us that not only does Jesus predict this persecution, but roughly 70 million Christians have died for their faith in a recent study that I was able to track down. It's hard to compute these numbers, but roughly 70 million Christians have died for their faith. And what was more crazy to me is about 45.2 or 65% of Christians who've died for their faith died in the 20th century. Jesus is clear. You're not to run into persecution, Okay. He makes very clear here, to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove in verse 16. He's saying, be crafty. Don't, don't actively seek out persecution. He also says, in the midst of persecution, there comes a time and a place where his, his, his uh, sent out ones are to leave the town as persecution kicks up. It's okay to flee, verse 23. But Jesus is saying this, that I'm sending you out to heal these diseases and to announce the reign of God again in this world, to announce forgiveness of sins, to announce new hope coming in Jesus Christ. And what would you expect the response to be? I guarantee, as you think about how the story would play out, no one expects the response to be this level of persecution. Mother against daughter. Father against son. No one expects to be hated by all. 
The punishment doesn't fit the crime. This is what I'm trying to say. Why is that? Why is that? Why is the level of persecution so intense? Because Jesus just can't be something. He's either everything or he's worse than nothing. He makes such radical demands of your life that you either lay everything aside and say, I am just a subplot in his greater story, or you say, my story is now about actively suppressing and ending this movement. This is what this passage is all about. Jesus comes and he says, this world was created with a certain order, and I have come to restore this creation to its original purpose. I've been sent by my Father to do that. Those who are sick, to heal them. Those, the sin which, which so greatly damages who we are as a society and who we are as individuals, to provide deep and lasting forgiveness for this, to bring new life into this world. And Jesus says, all it takes is you must follow after me. And this drives, this drives us insane. It drives us mad. It goes right after our core obsession, our passion, which is to put our comfort first, our power first, our status, our wealth, our name as the highest goal that we have of our waking hours. Jesus is saying, if you want in on my kingdom, you must die to these things and follow me. And when making those claims, we realize Jesus can't be just something in your life. He has to be everything or he has to be worse than nothing. You have to worship him or you have to actively suppress him. Some of you wonder why you're not experiencing more of God's power in your life. I wonder. I wonder if you haven't been treating God and the kingdom that Jesus comes to bring as some sort of subplot in your major plot of your life. If you haven't been using God in this announcement of the kingdom as, as some way to enhance your life, to live the good life, to give you sort of peace of conscience as you go ahead and do whatever you would have done anyway. Jesus can't be something. He can't be. He has to be everything. And when you realize he demands everything, for some of you, you're going to say he is worse than nothing. He must be shut up. He must be done away with. This is toxic. This is damaging to society. You see, maybe you're here and you've heard something about the story of Jesus and it's been a nice accessory in your life. You've thought, yeah, more or less, I like to say a prayer at a meal and I like to be thankful. The story of Christmas seems to be a good one, giving presents to those in need. I don't know if you know the Jesus that we find here in this passage. He's more aggressive. He's more in your face. He's more demanding. And he's more polarizing. He can't be just something. It can't be something you just like on Facebook along with a million other things you like. It can't be just something. So how do we know Jesus can't be just something? We know it because he promises a measure of persecution. I could go on and on, but I'll continue. We also know that he can't be just something in our life because he demands a persistent loyalty, an aggressive loyalty. Where does he demand this? Well, he demands as though we live our lives believing that he and his kingdom are everything, that they're the ultimate plot. Where do we see this? He says that he and his kingdom have to be our highest fear. Is that not what he's saying in verse 26? In the face of persecution, we're not to fear those who are persecuting us because they can only damage our bodies. We're to fear the one who has a greater judgment over us. That's what he's saying in verse 27, the one that can destroy not only our bodies but also our souls. Verse 28, there must be a properly ordered fear. You may be able to torture me, but there's one who can do much worse. He I fear more. He has to be our highest fear, our deepest fear. 
The story of his kingdom and the final judgments which come at the end have to be the story we're living into. He demands a persistent loyalty in the face of persecution. He must be the highest fear. But not just the highest fear, he also must be our highest confidence if we are going to be, show the correct loyalty to him. We look back at verse 19. He says, don't be anxious about what you speak or what you might say. Be confident through the Holy Spirit. This is my story. You're just a subplot in my story. I'll give you the words. This is my mission. I'm going to advance it. You're just one of the means or the channels by which he must be your highest confidence, not your skills, not your, not your degrees, not your ability to get out of a pinch. His spirit is the one who will ultimately do the work. He must be your highest confidence that even if you lose your life in him, you will find true life. But he also must be our highest loyalty. It must be greater than our family relationships. We see that in verse 35 through 37. We see father, son, mother, daughter, mother, mother-in-law. You know, these, these relationships, they have to be willing. You have to be willing for these things to be disrupted and broken and disordered if you're going to follow Jesus. He has to be your highest loyalty. He can't just be something. He has to be everything or else he has to be worse, worse than nothing, must be ignored. But he also has to be your highest judge. I mean, he says in verse 22, that we're to live knowing that the one that endures to the end will ultimately experience salvation. We're to live knowing that he's coming, verse 24, that he will give great reward and acknowledge us before his heavenly Father, verse 32. He demands a certain persistent loyalty. And he says, to the one who denies me, I'll deny him before my Father as well. But to the one who even so much as gives a cup of cold water to one of my children, I won't let that good deed go unnoticed. There will be rewards. He's the highest judge, the highest reward. He must be our highest fear, our highest confidence, our highest loyalty, our our most feared judge. If Jesus is anything, he has to be everything. Or he has to be worse than nothing, but the one thing he can't be is just something. A couple of months ago, Pierce Morgan had Ricky Gervais on his show, and he was interviewing him, and the subject went to atheism. And uh, Ricky Gervais was trying to, to go back and forth about some of the dispel uh, false understandings of atheism. And Ricky Gervais says this. He says, there's a strange myth going around that atheists have nothing to live for. It's actually quite the opposite. I have nothing to die for, but I have everything to live for. It's quite interesting. And yet somehow, as they went back and forth in this dialogue, you could, they couldn't help but reflect, if you have nothing to die for, then do you really have anything to live for? If there's nothing worth dying for, do you really have any reason to, do, to, to, to go out and take risks, to experience love, to do dangerous things, you know, to, to enter into relationships where you might get hurt, to take risks in business ventures? If there's nothing worth dying for, then how do you even know how to live? Jesus is saying that if he's anything, he's either everything or he's worse than nothing, worse than nothing. but what he can't be is just something. You see, he's demanding a persistent loyalty that anyone who came into your life and demanded this kind of loyalty would be a lunatic, would be a raging narcissist, would be someone you must get rid of out of your life. Unless, of course, they are indeed the Savior. Unless, of course, they are indeed the great King of Kings. Unless they are indeed the Lord. You see, so many of us live our lives with a persistent loyalty to, to moving targets over and over again. For some of us, our highest loyalty, our persistent loyalty is actually we're stuck because there was a family figure in our life. Maybe our, our mother, maybe our father, 
maybe a relative, maybe a boss. And this person has become for us uh, our highest goal in life, our, our highest, our greatest fear judge is this person's feedback. And all we want to do is live a life loyal to this person that we might win over their approval. And all of our lives become about, I mean, this is what, this is what half of therapy is about, right? Dealing with these parental issues where we, 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 we have too high of a view of their approval, of a, parent, a parent's approval or a boss's approval. And that becomes such a, a, a laser focus of persistent loyalty that we, we enter into destructive patterns. Jesus is saying this, and what I'm trying to argue is this. You will be persistently loyal to something. You have to be. That's how, that's, how, that's how we were made to be. You will have to, have to, have to put your hope and faith and trust in something. It might be a vision of the best version of yourself that all of your life decisions will be filtered through and you will be persistently loyal to. You think, the best of me would never take that job. I'm, I'm a little too good for that dinner appointment. I would never go to that. I, I need to be more dignified than that. You will have a vision of something and you will, you will live a life persistently loyal to this. And Jesus is saying, I and my kingdom, we must be, this must be that vision. This must be what you are always loyal to, what you are always striving for. What am I trying to say? If Jesus is anything, he's either, he is either everything or he's worse than nothing. But one thing he can't be is just something. What am I trying to argue? I'm trying to argue this. And I hope I've been clear. I'm trying to make things efficient here. But the Christian story is, is demanding of you one, it, it is pressing against you one major issue, and it's this, that you're living into some great story. Right now, something's going on as you live your life, and right now, you know, it says, on such and such a date, I went to church. And this story is either a subplot and a greater narrative that you're living towards, or you are trying to take all that is ex you're experiencing in your life, all that's coming at you, even this sermon, and you're trying to figure out how those are subplots that must be woven into the narrative of who you are becoming and who, who you ultimately will be. And what Jesus is coming to you is saying is that he will not be a subplot. He's either everything or he's worse than nothing. You must understand that he and his kingdom are rolling into this world and he demands that you get on board, that you, that you follow. He will not be an aid to your life. He will not be an improvement or a help to your life. He demands that he must be everything. Listen to what he says here as I wrap this up in verse 34. He says this, that he did not come to bring peace on the earth, but what? A sword. You see, you either have to look at a man who says something like this and say, here we go again, another crazy lunatic, mentally unwell person with a narcissistic desire for power. Or you have to say, and the most amazing of mysteries he did indeed bring a sword. He did disrupt a peace on our earth. He did come conquering, but the sword was shaped like a cross. And he disturbed the peace of our world with a wooden cross. He came with heaven's sword of God's justice, and he conquered it on this cross. That he took upon all the failures, all the selfish drives, all the sins, all the, all, all the ways in which we've wreaked havoc on our world, he took upon the consequences of each and every one of those things on a cross. And to the Greeks, this was considered foolishness. To the Jews, this was offensive that God himself would do this. To the average Torontonian, this is a silly fairy tale. But to those who have eyes to see, this is our only hope. That this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, that this work that he's done has satisfied God's justice. And now, not only can we be at peace with our God, 
through the disruption of peace that came through this cross. We can have peace with our God, but through his spirit we can have new life breathed inside of us. And that we can become the type of people who say Jesus is everything. He is absolutely everything. And if that means that I face persecution, so be it. If that means I have to have a persistent and dogged loyalty that will divide my family, that will hurt my professional responsibilities, so be it. He is everything. What have I been trying to argue? If Jesus is anything, he's either everything or he's worse than nothing. But one thing he cannot be is just something. So this morning, my challenge to you is make sure he's your everything. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that though we rightly positioned ourselves as enemies of you and your kingdom, and you had every right to wipe us out and start over again, in your kindness, you sent Jesus to be for us a true Savior. And though his call is hard, that, we, that we've got to take up our cross, that we have to experience tastes of death, of things that feel near and dear to us, you have given to us tastes of true and unliving, unending life at the exact same time. We thank you for the work of Christ and for your love towards us. This morning we repent and we acknowledge that we would like often to see the call of Jesus to just be one part of our life, one story of who we are, and we don't want it to overshadow all that we do. Remind us, even this evening, even tomorrow as we start work, that we work as unto you, that you must be everything. And God forbid, may we never treat you as just something. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf, for the forgiveness that comes at the cross. Make us new people by your spirit, we consistently pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.